In our study last week, as we were going through uh, 1 Samuel, what we saw is that uh, we saw what happened immediately after David's defeat of Goliath. Everybody knows that David fights Goliath, David beats Goliath, but it is very interesting to see what happens after David fights Goliath. David had taken a bold step of faith by stepping out and facing that giant. And, and God gave him victory on that day. And as a result of defeating Goliath, David became an instant celebrity. He became a hero. Uh, people loved David. He was an inspiration. People looked up to him. He was, a, he was a hero. He was an inspiration to people of what it looks like to live out your faith practically, to trust God, to do great things. But at the same time that all of Israel was falling in love with David, another thing was happening, and that is that Saul, the king of Israel, was becoming increasingly jealous of David. He was becoming increasingly envious of all the attention that David was getting because of his defeat of Goliath. And we, we left off in chapter 18, verse 9 last week, where we read that from that day forward, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. You know, jealousy and envy can really be a very dangerous, it can be a very insidious force in your life. If you harbor jealousy, if you hold on to it, if you let it take root and seed in your, in your life and in your heart, in your mind, it can become a cancer that will eat away at your inner life and ultimately destroy it. And, and it will also be something which can lead you to do terrible things. Proverbs 14 verse 30 tells us about envy. It says that envy is rottenness to the bones. One translation says that envy is a cancer in the bones. And as Saul harbors these feelings of envy and jealousy towards David, they are going to turn into this festering hatred that Saul will have towards David. It kind of escalates within him. It festers and it becomes this hatred. And it will escalate even to the point where Saul will become determined to hurt David. Whether that means destroying his reputation and, and discrediting him, or even if it means going to the point of killing David. He's willing to do that because this festering envy inside of him has just turned into this, this cancer. It's destroying his life. It's destroying his mind. David, as we're going to see in this text, David never considers Saul an enemy. Even though Saul is, is bent on, on taking David down, David will never consider Saul an enemy. David loves Saul. David looks up to Saul. And so you've got to ask the question, and, and we do, what did David do to deserve this kind of treatment by this man that he looks up to so much? Well, we've seen it. He, he hasn't done anything really. I mean, he hasn't done anything bad to deserve this kind of treatment. David fought against Goliath because it was the right thing to do, because he was standing up for what he believed in. He was taking a stand for his faith. But now in return, what does he get for this valiant deed for the Lord, this deed of faith? What does he get in return? He gets this man who has power, who's going to feel intimidated by David and he's going to want to take David down. It's going to be his personal mission to take David down because he's jealous of David's success and popularity. Maybe you've experienced similar situations in your life. Maybe at work, you know, you've had somebody who's just made you the target, right? They, they have a campaign to take you down, to discredit you, to take your position away from you. Maybe you've been attacked. Maybe you've been attacked unfairly. Maybe you've done the right thing at times, but in return, you've been treated badly. And the question is, what are we to do in those kinds of situations? How should you react when, when you're the target of an attack like that? 
In our text today, we're going to see how David responded, how he reacted when he was targeted, when he was attacked. And, and I really believe there's so much in here that we can learn from and apply to our lives in the situations that we face. So if you'd please read with me, we're going to pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 18. It happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he raved inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. We read a few weeks ago how, how Saul, when he had turned away from the Lord, when he had turned his back on God, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and in return a distressing spirit had come upon Saul. And during these times he would have these episodes of this distressing spirit coming upon him, and, and they would bring David in to minister to Saul with music. And David would play music for Saul with the lyre, which was kind of like a... Uh, kind of like a small harp, kind of like an old school guitar. And uh, David would sing songs of praise and worship to God and he'd play along on the lyre and this would bring comfort to Saul's soul during these times. So Saul we see here, as he gives himself over to this envy, this bitterness, this jealousy, he begins to have another one of these attacks and David is again brought in and David is ministering to him with music and playing uh, soothing music for him, singing songs about God to him. And I want you to notice this. Look at what each of these men has in their hands. There's a, there's a big difference between what they have in their hands. In David's hand is a harp. That's an instrument of praise. It's an instrument of worship. But in Saul's hand, is a different kind of instrument. There's a spear, an instrument of war. In David's hand is an instrument of healing. In Saul's hand is an instrument of violence, something intended to hurt and cause pain. And it's worth asking yourself, what is in your hand? How about in your mouth? What kind of words are in your mouth? Is there worship and praise? Is there healing? Or is there war and violence and pain and hurting? You know, the harp and the spear, that's the title of today's message, by the way, because these two objects that we see here, they speak volumes about where these two men were at in their hearts at this time. You know, David, he, he's got a harp in his hand, this instrument of praise, this instrument of healing. His heart is that he wants to glorify God. He wants to live for God. He wants to minister to people and bring God's healing into their lives. But Saul, he's ready to rage Saul is ready to cut people down to exalt himself, to bolster his position. It's a huge difference we see between these two men. We read in verse 11, And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. You know, if you're holding a spear, it's only a matter of time before you use it. And as David is ministering to Saul, Saul takes that spear which he's holding in his hands, just kind of caressing and feeling in his hand. He picks it up and he throws it at David and his intention, his goal is to pin David to the wall. He wants to kill him, right? From this point on, for the rest of his life, Saul is going to spend the rest of his days trying to hurt and to kill David. And David, like we said, he hasn't done anything to deserve this kind of treatment from Saul. It's really not fair. But as many of you know, the reality of life for David and for, for all of us as well is this, that you cannot control how people treat you. In fact, you can't always control what happens to you in life, right? But you can control how you react to those things. Somebody once said that 20% of life is what happens to you and 80% is your response to what happens to you. 
Ted Ingstrom, the, the former president of World Vision, he illustrated that very principle in this way. He, he told these stories. He said this, Cripple him and you will have Sir Walter Scott. Lock him in a prison cell and you will have John Bunyan. Bury him in the snows of Valley Forge and you will have George Washington. Raise him in abject poverty and you have an Abraham Lincoln. Strike him down with infantile paralysis and he becomes a Franklin Roosevelt. Burn him so severely that the doctors say he'll never walk again and you have a Glenn Cunningham who set the world's one mile record in 1934. Deafen him and you will have Ludwig von Beethoven. Have him born black in a society filled with racial discrimination and you'll have a Booker T. Washington, a George Washington Carver. Call him a slow learner. Write him off as uneducable and you will have an Albert Einstein. Now, all of these people that he mentions here, they faced very difficult things in life. Life hurt them. They didn't choose those circumstances. Nobody would have chosen those circumstances that they got in their life that they were faced with. But what they did get to choose was how they responded to those circumstances, how they reacted. And the people listed here reacted well. They responded well in spite of difficult circumstances. And what's interesting is if you look down that list, all of those people, the circumstances that they faced, the difficulties, although they were not enjoyable, although they wouldn't have chosen them, they did end up playing an integral integral that's a hard word to say by the way integral part in uh, in shaping these people into the people that they would become the great people that they would become and the same is true in your life and in my life you know most of us if we could choose we would cast our vote to have pain and difficulty and suffering extricated from the universe but the good news of the gospel is that although we live in a, a broken world where sin and pain and suffering and death are present realities that we have to deal with, the good news of the gospel is that our God is a redeemer. He's a redeemer. He doesn't just redeem our souls, but he redeems everything. He's a redeemer. He brings beauty from ashes. He takes bad things and uses them for good and even for his purposes. To the point where we are even told in the Bible, in the book of James, he says, count it all joy, brothers when you meet various kinds of trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. You know, you can't control how people treat you. That's the situation David's in right now. You can't control how people treat you. You can't always control what happens to you, but you do get to choose how you will respond to those things. And that is the situation David's in right now. Saul is attacking him. Why? What has David done? Well, nothing to deserve this. And the question is, how will David react? The spear, now, Saul has thrown the spear, tried to pin David to the wall, and he missed. You know what that means? That means the spear is on David's side now. David can easily pick that spear up and throw it back. And probably David's aim, we've seen him hit a guy square in the head with a rock from far away, right? His aim is probably better than Saul's, right? David's not going to miss if he picks up that spear and throws it back. And it could easily be justified, right? It could easily be justified as self-defense. David is just playing music. He got something thrown at him. It's just self-defense. He's picking it up and throwing it back, taking care of himself. David probably could have done this and still become king. After all, it's self-defense. He didn't cast the first spear 
Surely he could justify picking up that spear and throwing it back at Saul. The question is, what will David do? How about you? What would you do in that situation? Someone throws a spear at you. What do you do in those kinds of situations when people throw spears of accusation, when people try to hurt you? Uh, what do you do when people attack you and try to pin you to the wall? How do you respond? Gene Edwards, he wrote a classic book titled uh, A Tale of Three Kings. It's a short book, but it's very profound. If you have the chance, check it out. Here's, a, here's what Gene Edwards says in this book, uh, Tale of Three Kings. He says, everyone in the world knows what you are supposed to do when a spear is thrown at you. Why? You, you pick up the spear and you throw it back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, wrench it out of the wall and throw it back. Everyone else does it, you can be sure. But by, by throwing spears, you will prove many things, David. You will prove that you are courageous, that you are tough, that you can't be pushed around, that you will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment, that you will not be wronged. All of these attributes will prove that you are obviously a candidate for kingship. But if you throw spears, you will be a king after the order of Saul. And maybe in 20 years, you will become the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm. But then... Like Saul, you too will be quite mad. You see, having a, th a spear thrown at your head by King Saul, that's kind of a decisive moment. That's like a watershed moment in your life, in David's life. He, he has a choice to make. He can pick up the spear and throw it back and, and kill Saul in self-defense, in which case he will get to take his rightful place on the throne of Israel. Surely that's what most people would have done, and surely that is what Saul would have done to him. But David is a man after God's own heart. And so for David, it's not a question of what most people would do in this situation, or even what Saul would do to him, or what would be pragmatic. No, David, as a man after God's own heart, for him, the question is, what would God have me do? And so take a look at what David does. We see that he doesn't throw the spear back. He simply removes himself from the situation. What is the best thing to do when somebody is throwing spears at you and they're attacking you, trying to hurt you? Sure, no one would blame you if you fired back at them and let them have it, right? That would just be self-defense. But the question is not what would most people do. The question is, for a person after God's own heart, what would God do? What would God have me do? And David is a great example for us. He doesn't pick up the spear and fire back at Saul. David never puts down the harp, the, the instrument of healing, the instrument of praise and worship, to pick up the spear, the instrument of war and violence. He never, uh, he never does that. He simply just removes himself from the situation. But that's not all he does, and I think this is important to take note of. Read the last part of verse 11 with me. It says, David escaped his presence twice. David escaped his presence twice. I think that's noteworthy. Here's the point. That means that even after Saul threw the first spear at David, David continued to minister to Saul. Whether that means that he came back in the room or whether it means that he just dodged a spear and kept on playing until David sells Saul threw another one at him. I think that's noteworthy, and here's why. Because a lot of people would say, okay, I won't fire back. You, you tried to hurt me. I'm going to take the high road. I'm not going to fire back at you. I'm not going to do your, I'm not going to play your game, right? But here's the thing. I am never going to put myself in a place where I can be hurt by you ever again. Sound familiar? 
But that's not what David does. You notice that? Over the next several years of David's life, as Saul conspires to hurt him, David is going to continue to reach out to Saul. He's going to continue to treat Saul with love and respect and with kindness and honor. And David will always be seeking reconciliation with Saul. At the drop of a hat, David will be ready to say, I'll let bygones be bygones. I don't care what happened yesterday. I'm ready to reconcile. David doesn't say, look, okay, hey, I'm better than that. I'm not going to throw a spear at you, but I'm out of here. You can get somebody else to play music for you, you crazy old man, you know? But, but many times that's how we react, right? We say, fine, I'm not going to strike back. I'm going to be better than that, right? I'm not going to stoop to that level, but I am going to cut you off. I am going to cut you off. I will be civil with you. I will be cordial, but you and me, we're done, right? It's over between us. I will never be vulnerable again. But that's not what David did, and I think that is very significant. When David, or I'm sorry, when Saul threw a spear at David, David did three things. Number one, he didn't fire back. Number two, he removed himself from the situation. And number three, he did not allow his heart to grow bitter against Saul. And those are three very practical things for all of us to take note of when people are firing spears at us. Let's continue from verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. Saul here is going to try a different angle, a different tactic to get to David to uh, yeah, to get rid of David. Rather than trying to kill him himself, he sees my aim's not very good, but hey, you know what? The spears of the Philistines, the swords of the Philistines, they're just as sharp as mine, and they've got more of them. So why don't I let David fall to the hands of the Philistines, and that way I still look like the good guy, right? I don't have to kill him myself. If I kill David, well then I'll be a murderer. I'll have killed the hero of the people. They'll hate me for it. But if David were to die in battle, well, that would be the perfect situation, the best of both worlds. David would be out of the picture. People would again be looking to me as their valiant leader and, and everything would be great, right? So Saul gives David a promotion. But in giving him this promotion, he's hoping that it will put a big target on David's head for the Philistines to come after him all the more because of his new position. For the rest of the chapter, this is the kind of stuff that we're going to see from Saul. Saul is going to take a very passive, aggressive stance towards David. He wants David to fail. He wants David to fall, but he's not going to do it uh, in a direct way. He's going to do it in an indirect way, in a kind of a crafty, manipulative way in which he's going to try to hurt David without making himself look bad. A lot of people do this. We call it passive-aggressive behavior. Um, that means that they do things to hurt another person, but in a way that they can still say, hey, I'm not doing anything, right? Uh, passive-aggressive behavior is defined as this. Deliberate but carefully veiled hostile acts. And that's exactly what Saul is doing. From verse 14, we'll read on. David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because David went out and came in before them. That phrase that David went out and came in before them, that's kind of a Hebrew euphemism, which means that David had success in all of his military endeavors. 
You know, even though Saul is against him, even though Saul is trying to trip him up and, and cause him to fall, God is with David and David behaves wisely and, and just continues to have success. Uh, Saul's plans just keep backfiring and David becomes all the more popular. Now, at this point, David could have chosen to use his popularity as a spear against Saul. I mean, he could have rallied people behind him. He could have done Saul's thing and done the passive-aggressive thing to set Saul up for failure. He could have said, okay, Saul, two can play at this game and started doing these kind of things to undermine Saul and hurt Saul, but he didn't. You know, Saul, uh, that, that's what most people would have done. But, but David isn't concerned with what most people would do in any given situation or what Saul would do to him. Again, the concern of a person with a heart after God's own heart is this. God, what would you have me do in this situation? How would you have me respond? How would you have me treat this person who's treating me badly? Again, you cannot control how people treat you and you cannot always control what happens to you but you can control your reaction to those things will you respond in a natural way or will you respond in a supernatural way David refuses to respond in the natural way to throw spears to get bitter to get passive-aggressive he responds to these attacks in a supernatural way in accordance with God's heart in David's reaction uh, to all that's happening to him Notice that he never considers himself a victim. You know, the victim mentality says, your fate is in the hands of the one who is attacking you. But David knows that his fate is in God's hands. And because of that, he's able to have peace in the, even in the midst of this situation. From verse 17, we read, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I, and what is my life, or my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? If you remember back to uh, chapter 17, we saw that as an incentive to, you know, get somebody to fight against Goliath because nobody wanted to, Saul had promised that anybody who could defeat Goliath, he would give that man his daughter in marriage. And so uh, David did that. This is really what's coming to him. So Saul in his passive-aggressive scheming against David, how he can hurt him, he comes up with a new scheme. It's pretty clever, but it's totally rotten. David tells, or sorry, Saul tells David, I'm ready to make good on my promise. I told you I'd give you my daughter, so I'm going to give you my daughter in marriage. For David, this would mean becoming part of the royal family. This was a big deal. And, and you can see that in David's reaction. He says, wow, you know, who am I that I should become the son-in-law of the king? He's genuinely flattered, he's genuinely excited, he's genuinely honored that he would become the son-in-law of the king. And we see this in, uh, in David's heart, right? That he is a genuinely a humble person. In spite of his fame, in spite of his success, David remains humble. He doesn't say, you know, it's about time I got some recognition. He's genuinely blown away. You know, humility doesn't mean thinking poorly of yourself, thinking down on yourself. Humility simply means not thinking about yourself, not being consumed with thoughts about yourself. Three times in the Bible, this phrase is repeated. It says this, God opposes the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's exactly what's happening here in this story. Saul is attacking, Saul is scheming, Saul is manipulating. Why? Because he's consumed with thoughts about himself, what he wants, what he deserves. And so when someone else comes along and starts getting attention, uh, Saul can't handle it. David, on the other hand, I mean, he's a celebrity, he's a hero, people sing songs about him, but yet his attitude is, who am I? Who am I? He's humble. And we see this principle at work here in David's life that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that principle will be true in your life as well. As, as much as you get into a prideful place in your heart, you will find yourself at odds with God. In order to come to God, that's one of the prerequisites, right, that you have a humble and submissive heart. In order to receive the gospel and be saved the requirement is that you humble yourself before God and say who am I God who am I that you would welcome me into your family what is my life that you would love me so much as to give your life for me yeah I have sinned I've fallen short of your glory God and I'm just blown away sincerely that you would love me in spite of how I've sinned and fallen short God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Check out what Saul does to get back at David. But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. In other words, like a few days before David's wedding, he finds out that his fiancée just married another guy, right? Bummer, right? David's here getting ready for his wedding. He's all excited. And then he finds out one day that, oh, Saul gave my fiance to another guy, you know, Adriel the Maholathite, whoever that guy is. I mean, can you imagine that? This is the kind of passive aggressive behavior we're talking about. It, you, you know why Saul did this? He did it to provoke David. He did it because he's trying to provoke David to anger. He's trying to provoke David to do something in anger that Saul can use against him to discredit him. You know, if Saul's thinking, man, if I'm lucky, I can get David to just like go crazy and start yelling at me, right? Or maybe, maybe I'll be really lucky and he'll attack me, right? And try and punch me out or something. Maybe if I'm really lucky, he'll attack, you know, Adriel the Maholathite and then I don't have to get beat up, but I still get the same effect, right? And then I can say, hey, everybody, did you see this? You see how David's acting? Wow, what a hero he is, huh? He's not a patriot. He's a traitor. He's treating me, the king, like this. He's treating the, the king's son-in-law. He's hoping that David will trip up. He's trying to set a trap for him, but it doesn't work. We read that David continues to act wisely. So Saul comes up with another plan from verse 20. Now Michal, the, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told David and the thing, or they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to David that she may be a snare to him. It's a nice dad, huh? And, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David and David said, does it seem to you a light thing to become a king's son-in-law? See, I am a poor and lightly esteemed man. And the servants of Saul told him, saying this manner, in this manner, or they told Saul, in this manner David spoke. And Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines 
to take vengeance on the king's enemies. And Saul thought that he would make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So here's Saul. Uh, he's probably not going to become father of the year because he's basically using his daughters as pawns, right, in his scheming against David. You know, he hears that his one daughter has a crush on David, and he says, perfect, right? I can use her as a snare. That's a great father, right? And here's Saul's scheme. You know, in that society, it was commonplace, even in still some societies today, that if you were going to marry a woman, you would pay a dowry to her parents uh, in exchange for her hand in marriage. So Saul says to David, he goes, look, I can see you take this very seriously. Well, then do something. Instead of money, we both have money. We don't need money. Just do a valiant act for me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Now, obviously, this is a very dangerous thing to do. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get somebody to give you their foreskin, you either need to be a very good salesman, a uh, very convincing person to talk somebody into that, or you have to kill them, right? That's the other way, which may be easier, right? So, uh, you know, foreskins are just not very easy to come by. The Philistines aren't just going to hand them over, you know? So, uh, you know, Saul's hope here is that David is going to get killed in the process of fulfilling this request of his. Verse 26 so when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, and he and his men, and they killed 200 men of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. David says, all right, King Saul, I'll see your 100 foreskins, and I'll raise you 100 foreskins. You know, uh, you know there are certain stories in the Bible that we kind of skip over in our children's ministry. This is one of them. <laughs> they, uh, they told me that for the past two weeks, I've been teaching the same story that they've been teaching to all the kids in the children's ministry. I think this week they skipped this one for some reason. Um, you know that we don't have a coloring page for this. That's... that's uh, that's mostly why we skipped it. Uh, there's no flannel. For some reason, they don't sell that flannel board, the flannel gram thing for this story. Um, verse 28. Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul became more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. I want you to notice this. Uh, Saul decides here, it tells us definitively, Saul decides that David is his enemy. He's his enemy, right? But David never feels this way about Saul, he never feels the same way about Saul that Saul feels about him. He never says, Saul is my enemy. I'm going to take Saul down. Not at all. David, to the end, he loves and respects Saul in spite of all that Saul has done to him. In spite of the fact that Saul throws spears at his head and, and gives his fiancée away to another man right before their wedding day, Saul refuses to go to that place of bitterness in his heart against I mean, sorry, David refuses to go to that bitter place of bitterness in his heart against Saul. David refuses to see Saul as his enemy. Again, you cannot control how people treat you. And you can't always control what happens to you. But you get to control how you respond, how you react to the things that happen to you. And David is a great example for us of someone who was treated badly, who was hurt by others, 
who had bad things happen to him in life, and yet he responded well. You know, the question that comes up when reading a section like this is, is the following, right? This is what comes to my mind, at least. If David has this magnificent heart, right, this heart after God's own heart, God loves this man, and God has chosen him to be the next king. He's anointed him then why is God allowing such terrible things to happen to David? I mean, having a spear thrown at your head twice by a man that you look up to, having your fiance married off to another man right before your wedding day, and in the next chapter, we're gonna see that David begins to run for his life. He becomes a, a fugitive, and, and he'll live this way for many years. He'll be hunted by Saul with the power of the entire Israeli army behind him. Now, why would God allow this? I mean, if God loves David, if David loves God, if God is all-powerful, if God is sovereign, then couldn't God have stopped this at least somewhere along the way? I mean, if David's going to be king anyway and Saul is just kind of a nuisance, then why can't God just give Saul a heart attack or something, right? Like, just stop him from doing these, this campaign of hurt to David. And that gets to the question, obviously, that we ask of our own lives or people that are connected to us. We say, God, why did you let that happen? I love you. That person loves you. Why, God? Well, why should I have to go through that? Why should they have to go through that? You know, God allowed David to go through these things because God, through these things, shaped David into the man that he would become. God shaped him through these difficulties into the man that he would become. Again, here, here's what Gene Edwards had to say about it. I, I can't put it in better words than this. He said, David, the sheep herder, he would have grown up to become King Saul number two, except that God cut away the Saul that was inside of David's heart. And that operation of cutting away the inner soul. It took years. It was a brutalizing experience that almost killed the patient. And what were the scalpel and the tongs that God used to remove the inner soul from David's heart? It was the outer soul. King Saul sought to destroy David, but his only success came in that he became the instrument of God to put to death the soul who roamed in the caverns of David's own soul. And he goes on to say this, God is looking at the King Saul in you. In me, you say? Yes, Saul is in your bloodstream. In the marrow of your bones, he makes up the very flesh and muscle of your heart. He's mixed into your soul. You are King Saul. He breathes in the lungs and beats in the breast of all of us. There's only one way to get rid of him. He must be removed by surgery. When, when Michelangelo, I mentioned the statue of David, uh, uh, yeah, Michelangelo's statue of David, this masterpiece of Renaissance art, which is in Florence, it's 20 feet tall, it's, it's really a, you know, it's a great uh, masterpiece of art. When, when Michelangelo was creating this masterpiece, this famous statue of David, he said that he looked at the huge chunk of raw stone and he could see the masterpiece hidden inside and it was his job to remove it or to set it free to release it and it was there you know it the masterpiece was inside but it was covered up by a bunch of unnecessary stuff right junk that needed to be removed in order to reveal the masterpiece hidden within and so you know what Michelangelo did 
How did he remove that masterpiece from the stone that it was in? He used a hammer and a chisel. He used a hammer and chisel to break off the rough pieces, the parts that didn't belong, the parts that were unnecessary, so that he could reveal the masterpiece inside. And he kept hammering and chiseling until all the unnecessary parts were gone and all that remained was the masterpiece. And that is what God did with the man, David, and that is what he does in my life and in your life. He sees in you the man or the woman that he created you to be, right? The one that he created and he looked upon and said, it is very good. And and he sees, but it's covered up, that masterpiece is covered up by unnecessary junk. And all that stuff, the stuff of the flesh, the stuff that is Saul-like, the tendencies of pride and greed and manipulation, self-seeking and envy and hatred. He wants to remove that in order to reveal the masterpiece. And so he takes the hammer and the chisel and he knocks away at a chunk of this and a chunk of that, the unnecessary stuff, the Saul-like tendencies. But you know what? Chiseling hurts. Hammering hurts, right? It can be painful. But through this process, like in David's life, God is forming us into the image of Christ. Here in 1 Samuel, as we look at David and we say, we want to be like David. We want to have a heart like David have. It's not because we really just want to be like David. It's because we want to be like Jesus. And David was like Jesus. That's the reason we want to be like David, because he was like Jesus. He's an example for us of what it looks like to have a heart and an attitude of Jesus. That's what it means that David had a heart after God's own heart. Philippians chapter 2, it says this, Let this mind also be in you which was in Christ Jesus, that heart of humble obedience to the will and the plan of the Father. That mind, that heart which was in Christ Jesus, it was in David. And God wants it to be in each and every one of us as well. May it be so. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to see in David an example, a practical example of what it looks like uh, to have the heart of Jesus and to live with the heart of Jesus. Lord, would you work that heart in us, a heart after your own heart, Lord. Lord, we just ask that you would take and remove from us those unnecessary parts, those Saul-like tendencies, just like you did in David's life, Lord. We don't want to become like Saul, but Lord, we do see that in many ways we are like him. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts. Get rid of those Saul-like tendencies. Make us more like Jesus. That's what we want to be. And thank you, Jesus, that we can know you, that you gave yourself for us because of your great love for us. We honor you today and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.